Welcome back to Africa is a Country Talk. I am your host, William Shorkey, and a staff writer at Africa is a Country. If you don't know, AIAC Talk is Africa is a Country's weekly talk and interview show. You can find us on whichever podcasting platform you prefer. Do subscribe, do like and share our episodes and find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, as well as YouTube. If you missed our program last week, it was a very interesting one. I had on founder and editor Sean Jacobs to talk about the ongoing African Cup of Nations. But we we didn't simply talk about the football, who's likely to win. Sean's money is in Algeria, my money is in Senegal. We also spoke about the history of the tournament itself and how the history of the tournament mirrors the story of decolonization on the continent, facing many of the same troubles that African states themselves face in the post-colonial era. So that episode is live wherever you listen to your podcasts. Do catch it. And as I said, like, subscribe, and continue supporting us. We appreciate all of the support. So today's episode is a very exciting one. Of course, as the world continues to ponder its post-pandemic future, the role of the world's great powers comes into the fore. And I'm sure a lot of people have been feeling like we are approaching a kind of Cold War 2.0 scenario with China and America competing for influence over countries in the world. At least that's the story that we are told. But how true is it? In today's episode, I'm very pleased to be joined by Professor Tang Xiaoyang, who is an associate professor in the Department of International Relations at Tsinghua University and the deputy director of the Carnegie Tsinghua Center for Global Policy. His research interests include political philosophy, China's engagement in Africa, and the modernization process of the developing countries. He's the author of China-Africa Economic Diplomacy, which was published in 2014 in Chinese and has published extensively on Asia-Africa relations. He completed his PhD in the philosophy department at the New School for Social Research in New York. And he has also worked for the World Bank, USAID, IFPRI, and various research institutes and consulting companies across the world. Professor Tang, thank you so much for making the time to join the program. It's uh, nice to talk to you. And uh, thank you very much for inviting me. So I want to start, Professor Tang, by asking this question. You've, you've just published this book, which is called Co-Evolutionary Pragmatism, Approaches and Impacts of China-Africa Economic Cooperation that was published last year with Cambridge University Press. First of all, congratulations on the publication of the book. And what I'd like to know is that there's a received idea, which is prevalent across right-wing liberal and left intellectual circles, that says that China's involvement in Africa is driven by political ideology, that primarily it wants to export its model of state-led economic development and the adjoining political system, which is an alternative, so we are told, to Western liberal democracy. And your new book challenges this conventional wisdom. Why do you think it is mistaken? Yes, Uh, thank you. And uh, I think uh, China's uh, approach is an alternative to the West. That's true. But however, China doesn't uh, have a model 
or China, uh, like you said, uh, people feel that China, we are going to the Cold War 2.0. But in fact, uh, I would uh, argue that uh, China doesn't have interest in going to this uh, new Cold War. And uh, this impression was mainly caused by the misunderstanding of the outsider on China's development. So I, my main thesis is that China's approach, it's a rather as a response of a non-Western country to this Western-led modernization. And through this way of response, and China managed to develop by addressing the challenges of the modernization. And through this successful experience, China actually reflects and understands this experience of modernization part of uh, independent uh, pursuit. So China's main difference from the West is not about two different models like in the Cold War, but it's about a different understanding. While the West, when they uh, modernize themselves, they uh, move, expand their influence. It's always from this uh, yeah, a little bit uh, uh, condescending uh, attitude. So saying we are the civilized, we are the advanced uh, uh, civilization and then lead to some uh, uh, colonizing and uh, or leading others to follow the Western model. But China as a later comer, as a non-Western country to respond to this kind of challenge. And uh, China understands that's, uh, uh, when, especially when China succeeded in developing itself, China understands that it's actually not about leading uh, other countries to follow your model, but actually it's a common interest for everybody to uh, get modernized and uh, in that way, but uh, however, in that uh, to achieve that goal, the most important thing is that for everybody to find a transformation according to their own history or their own situations and their own culture. Yeah, so, so that's also mainly my idea on China, the so-called China model actually has no models. The main concept that you use to, to deploy or rather to characterize China's approach in Africa is pragmatism. So I'm a philosophy student, uh, an untalented one at that, I should say. And when I hear pragmatism, I think of the philosophical tradition, which tried to present itself as an alternative to the grand theories of both continental and analytical philosophical traditions. So could you just maybe unpack pragmatism as uh, as a develop as as an outward looking developmental approach uh, in the way that the China uses it, what does it mean to say that China's involvement in in Africa is pragmatist? Okay, yeah, uh, right, yeah. This uh, term uh, is uh, uh, has its origin in philosophy, as I'm also a philosophy PhD, and uh, but however, when I use it here. I have uh, attached a specific meaning, namely it's, uh, uh, it uh, deals with the goal. So the pragmatism uh, different 
different from idealism or this analytical philosophy. It's about the its goal is about the productivity growth, and I argue in my book this is the real like a key element in the modernization, and also especially in this capitalist capitalism driven modernization, because the according to Karl Marx, in fact the capitalism its purpose is to yeah accumulate the value and this actually drives also then the productivity growth and i argue this the pursuit of endless productivity growth actually gives is the characteristic part of the modern society and meanwhile it gives this capitalism and this modern western origin the modernization the power to conquer all other parts of the world and as a developing country then china gradually realized this goal is so important. In fact, I also used various historical documents to show that in across the world, actually most of the traditional communities, they didn't have such a goal. And in, but however, as this capitalism, they showed their power uh, for uh, to the whole world and almost even conquered the whole world and every country every traditional community they feel obliged to respond to this capitalism so that means they also need to shift their uh, communal uh, goal from uh, the other like uh, traditional religious or cultural values or towards this uh, productivity growth. So the uh, pragmatism basically means uh, the shift of the goal of this communal goal towards productivity growth. And I also think this is the key element for China to succeed in its development during the last four decades, namely the whole country. They have reached a consensus of promoting productivity growth as their central task. What you've just said now reminds me a lot of, I don't know if you've read it, uh, Isabella Weber's new book, How China Escaped Shock Therapy. And she describes the market reform debate that took place in China as centering around the question not of whether or not China would transition to a market economy, but how it would do so sustainably. And most of the time it was walking the path as it made it. And it was a result of experimentation, trial and error, as well as figuring things out. And so China ended up where it was now, not out of some predetermined blueprint, but because it basically tried to, to act pragmatically uh, and figure out what is the best way to transition to a market economy without jeopardizing political stability. Uh, is that roughly what it means to be uh, pragmatic as well. And China, as you say, now draws from its own national experience. Yes, I think uh, that's largely consistent with uh, my idea. And uh, so the 
pragmatism, which uh, means uh, primarily the uh, focus on these uh, targets. And of course, that's about the communal target. So it's uh, not just uh, about uh, like individual ones, but uh, how the country, the co whole community, they take this target as uh, they are like uh, the priority, not the uh, model, not the political system or a certain kind of uh, uh, like a market economy or liberalism, not this uh, kind of ideology as the prior as the ultimate criteria but as a productivity uh, growth uh, as the uh, criteria so that uh, the whole country then as you said they can do uh, various kinds of experimentation and uh, also back and forth so in fact uh, within china there's a, uh, so much uh, diversity and also back and forth uh, during the reform in some uh, regions uh, maybe more market element uh, in other regions uh, more government uh, controlled in some period uh, also more liberalist approaches, but uh, when it doesn't fit anymore, then people may move back. All these uh, complex and diverse, flexible approaches, they are able to function just because people had this common uh, consensus on the yeah, final target. So therefore, they can just uh, uh, experiment around. But meanwhile, see all this experimentation in the end, they will converge to uh, make this overall contribution of the industrialization. But is 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 pragmatism entirely neutral? So towards the end of your book, you do concede that there is a political subtext to the pursuit of productivity growth. On the one hand, it's to aspire for sovereignty and economic independence. And I think we can add to that um, social stability and prosperity and, and other related terms. Um, and, and productivity growth too, I think, has to be constrained by the pursuits of those, of those visions as well. So untrammeled productivity growth that jeopardizes political stability will probably not be not something that is embraced or productivity growth that compromises or, or leads to social disorder will probably not be pursued. So to what extent is pragmatism neutral and how, what else do you think is the, the political subtext that, that underpins that? I would uh, argue that uh, the political implications have uh, two different dimensions. So one dimension is about a domestic political uh, uh, significant implication. So as you mentioned, uh, yeah, the social welfare or some uh, the political stability, these things uh, are important, but these things are important uh, only regarding that they provide the, uh, they, they can contribute to the sustainable growth of this productivity growth. Namely, when you are doing the uh, social 
social welfare. So what, which, what kind of uh, social welfare is uh, the best one? In fact, you need to examine it with the criteria of whether they can help the economy uh, grow. Right. If uh, social welfare is uh, just uh, too um, equalist, then in fact people may lose motivation to work hard or to compete for better uh, yeah, results. Then actually the, uh, this kind of uh, uh, equalism doesn't work. This is actually some we may also see in the former socialist system. They stress on this kind of uh, equalist treatment, but they may actually hamper the country's productivity growth. But meanwhile, we also cannot allow the polarization to uh, go too far uh, too far away right otherwise then the inequality they also may harm the sustainability of growth because uh, the rich uh, are just super rich while the poor ones do not have a basic living uh, uh, yeah, guarantees and also they have no purchasing power that itself is not helpful for the economy Either. So in terms of uh, domestic uh, uh, social political environment, uh, we need to consider these elements and to find the appropriate uh, portion to keep this uh, economic growth sustainably uh, increase. Uh, uh, as a, the other dimension of the political significance is actually the international ones. And uh, that is uh, what I mentioned about the uh, Western leader led uh, this view on modernization, which is uh, more using the West uh, as uh, the example and uh, then try to uh, prescribe uh, the, uh, the different uh, rules uh, and approaches uh, to other developing countries. And China just uh, find uh, this kind of uh, uh, views uh, are not right because uh, what are the Western they prescribe, uh, no matter about the social welfare, about the governance uh, or about some uh, this uh, ideological concepts like human rights, uh, etc. They just use the, the Western countries' own conditions as uh, the examples, but they do not fit to the conditions uh, of uh, non-Western countries. So China then said, uh, in the end, it's actually the, this goal. What uh, makes uh, the Western strong? It's not really this, uh, this uh, conditions itself, because these conditions and this, uh, uh, like uh, the human rights or this governance, they make sense only when the West, uh, they are strong with their powers, with their economy. And uh, uh, so China find out, uh, yeah, it's not the approach, but it's the end, this, uh, the, this uh, goal. Yes, uh, matters. So China then, uh, in its own reform and development process, China then uh, skips these um, uh, models prescribed by the West, but directly takes a goal and encourages this uh, 
yeah, uh, flexible um, approaches. And its uh, implication is also for other developing countries, namely uh, to tell the other developing countries, you should not uh, uh, follow any uh, models or these prescriptions, but I'd rather think about that goal. Yeah, this I think this is uh, uh, for internationally uh, uh, a real experience or lesson learned by China's uh, uh, development, namely to tell the, uh, mm -hmm. other developing countries uh, uh, what's uh, more important in during the modernization, it's not the model or uh, this uh, yeah path itself, mm. but it's uh, the goal. So it, it makes sense that that China would care about its own pursuit of continuous productivity growth, but why is that also a goal for China to try and 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 drive in in Africa. I think what you're saying about the West's approach is correct, but I think what that does is that at least people can discern the aims of the West in a very transparent way. It's on the civilization mission, so it thinks to try and implement a Washington-style consensus politics on the continent. But I think that. As much as there's a lot of misinformation, there's a lot of rumor mongering about what exactly China's motives on the continent are, I think one of the reasons that kind of suspicion and skepticism thrives is because I think a lot of people must trust that China's sole interest on the continent is to encourage continuous productivity growth and to encourage that um, across the world as well. I think for a lot of people, it sounds just a little bit too altruistic. Uh, is there more to that or, or how, should we, how should we interpret China's motives? Uh, I agree that uh, China's uh, engagements uh, and uh, in, uh, even actually the cooperation with uh, the different African countries may attract a lot of suspicions and uh, controversies. But I do not think that transparency can really help a lot in that respect. That's because uh, when a uh, community, uh, when they experience a rapid uh, transformation like industrialization. Uh, I, I actually also experienced uh, this uh, yeah, controversies uh, even within China's own development. And uh, I do not think that uh, people will have uh, the consensus if uh, all the information uh, are like uh, disclosed publicly. Uh, on the contrary, actually, when people got more information, you may have uh, even more controversies. Things, uh, uh, community which is uh, not uh, very familiar with uh, this, all these uh, changes and how to restructure the whole uh, issues, it will be uh, yeah, a huge challenge. And a uh, uh, side effect of the trans this transparency may be that uh, people really can do uh, little to move this uh, project forward. 
And uh, but however, uh, in spite of that, China has been uh, improving its uh, yeah, disclosure of related uh, informations. Because in uh, when another question about the uh, transparency is you need to have solid uh, statistic systems, right? And uh, also have uh, some um, uh, regulations. So in fact, the transparency requires a lot of uh, uh, resources and efforts. And uh, uh, so that will take extra uh, money and time. Also another issue is uh, uh, even in the West, the transparency is only limited uh, to some sectors, like the public and the state uh, sector, while the private and the commercial sectors, they can yeah, keep the, the confidentiality because uh, there's a need really for business. For uh, when you have new ideas, you have uh, uh, approaches, you need to really, uh, for the purpose of encouraging the uh, like uh, innovations, you need to keep this uh, secret. And uh, uh, for China, there are a lot of controversies also uh, because people confuse uh, the Chinese system with the Western system. Uh, people just say, oh, that's the state-owned uh, banks uh, or the state-owned companies uh, coming to Africa, therefore they need to disclose their information. But that's wrong because uh, this state-owned banks and the state-owned enterprises, they are in fact uh, commercial entities. They are following the international business rules. Right, so if you then people require this Chinese uh, uh, companies to publish information like the Western donor agencies, that's unfair. And also that will kill the business because then the Chinese business may lose their uh, yeah, competitiveness or their innovative approaches. And that's not really uh, the healthy for the business. So from all these reasons, uh, that's, uh, I think it involves a lot of uh, uh, yeah, different ideas mm. or yeah, misunderstandings as well. Uh, but also, the, 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 it's also a necessity for some um, uh, this kind of for uh, during this uh, transformation process, because mm. uh, yeah, people just find uh, that uh, to do business or to pursue even capitalist uh, these values. For this uh, pursuit itself, there are even numerous controversies. So I think in that regard, then it doesn't really matter if there are so many uh, suspicions, because in the long run and in general, uh, if these activities in the end can help Africa develop, that's the more important uh, outcome. While mm. uh, the yeah, discussions and uh, disputes, it uh, anyway should accompany this uh, process. And uh, I also am glad, I will say, I'm glad to see that uh, the, in fact, there are more and more people starting 
start to understand this uh, process and uh, see the value of uh, Chinese approaches and uh, the Chinese in, uh, this uh, uh, investments and commercial activities. So I'm mm. uh, rather optimistic for the long-term uh, result. Mm, yeah, I definitely agree that there's a double standard between how people treat disclosure and transparency obligations against the West vis-a-vis uh, -vis China. But I'm, I'm wondering if, if you have an optimistic view, but I think I have a slightly more pessimistic one. And to cite maybe one recent example about whether or not you think that this might backfire is uh, thinking about the Bagamoyo port project, for example, in, in Tanzania, which was uh, originally being steered by uh, ex-president John Magufuli. And, you know, one of the reasons that project stalled for so long is as negotiations were being conducted uh, clandestinely, Magufuli claimed that the, the terms of the agreement were extremely exploitative and disfavorable to Tanzania. Uh, one rumor that I think went around uh, at the time was that uh, the Chinese financiers initially wanted to, to lease the, the port once construction had been completed for, for 99 years, and only then it would be given back, back to, to China. So I mean, assuming this is the trend, I'm not saying that it is. I think there's 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 more cases to argue, and you, as you've just said, that some people are, are convinced otherwise. But do you think that if the trend goes in this direction, uh, that China will will adjust its approach uh, in the spirit of pragmatism and and say, well, maybe this isn't working anymore, and maybe we need to to change style? No, I would say this Bagamoyo project doesn't change the whole trend. In fact, when China is doing business, uh, that just shows that China really is serious about business, right? So China is not doing any aid project in Bagamoyo. Uh, although China has a lot of uh, aid project in Tanzania, like the Tanzania-Zambia railway and and uh, yeah, numerous projects in uh, Tanzania. But this uh, aid project, in fact, didn't really work very well. Just uh, although it meets all this, uh, uh, makes uh, maybe the public very satisfied uh, and feel, feeling the friendship, but uh, the productivity is uh, not uh, growing sustainably. And uh, while this uh, business project, then uh, China says, uh, we, while we think the port or some new project will benefit Tanzania, we also want our benefits. So we will uh, discuss then whether we can reach consensus on this uh, common uh, on mutual benefits. If uh, in a business then uh, a partner in the negotiation, some partners uh, said, uh, uh, yeah, you, we just feel that's too much. Other partners then uh, also cannot uh, uh, concede anymore. Then we just uh, 
leave the negotiation table maybe for the time being. And that, but that didn't change the whole trend saying just because uh, the failure of this negotiation, then we no longer negotiate anymore. On the contrary, China is still doing a lot of uh, projects with Tanzania to find uh, other new opportunities with Tanzania. So while the uh, former pre president uh, Magufuli, he may uh, yeah, use some exaggerating words. That's his style. That was his style. But uh, yeah, I don't think the basic like uh, relationship between China and uh, African countries has been changed with uh, this uh, individual projects. In fact, uh, uh, yeah, back and forth, that's also a part of the pragmatism. As long as we can reach our uh, common goal in the long run, uh, some uh, lessons, uh, some uh, failures uh, during the process, it's actually, uh, I would say, even healthy for the long-term relationship because uh, experimentation means you need to learn from the failures. Mm, mm. And and what you said in the beginning about, you know, China still doing business, uh, I think is is a helpful way to, to get to understanding the distinctness of the Chinese approach from the Western one, uh, because ultimately, as you've just said, what China seeks is, is mutual benefits. And it's, it's not interested in giving aid, as you've just mentioned. It's not out to give handouts at once the agreements that it enters into to be profitable for itself. And ultimately it wants it to help create sustainable growth. So could you talk a little bit about, about this, this difference of approach uh, of how uh, Chinese investment and increasingly Chinese investment that we are seeing move away from the major lending banks uh, like the Chinese Infrastructure Bank or the Chinese Exim Bank and more and more uh, happening through state-owned enterprises and the like, how this approach is, is fundamentally undergirded by, by the pursuit of, of, of sustainable growth and what that means. Aid itself is not sustainable. Right when you give aid, you do not just from the uh, yeah you do not always want to continuously give aid. Even when somebody like say I just want to give aid continuously, but it's also not good for the recipient because that's about aid dependence, right? So for the productivity growth, we really need the. Uh, business. So that's uh, also what uh, I argued uh, in the beginning. Uh, that's about the power of uh, capitalism, because the capitalism in, for itself, any investment, any commercial activity, their purpose is to increase value. And how to increase the value? The most fundamental approach is to uh, improve and elevate its uh, productivity. And uh, it's uh, either through like a division of labor through specialization or through this international cooperation. So therefore, when you have this target of sustainable productivity growth, the best way is in fact to do business. And aid, they only help when the market doesn't function immediately. Maybe you need some like aid and public support 
pressure to get over some uh, overcome some temporary threshold. But in the long run, it's the business to drive this productivity grow sustainably. So that's the logic of the whole modernization and the modern capitalism. So why I think the West Although they themselves grow in through this path, but now when they look at the international development, they actually didn't see this part because I think yeah, for it's in their own current conditions, they only they already formed a set of established rules and values, and they so they only want to copy this established rules and values to other countries, but they didn't see the most dynamic element in their society is actually this historical evolution towards this of this business activities. And China experienced that only during last four or five decades. So China understands this growth momentum more closely than the Western countries. And uh, so that's why mm. China puts more emphasis on the business activities and uh, seeing that uh, uh, just uh, depending, and also China had a lot of uh, failures uh, in lessons from the aid project. In my book, I also discussed about uh, how this uh, former aid projects actually provided a lot of food for thought for the Chinese Chinese uh, new uh, activities. So I think this uh, is uh, um, some uh, lesson and the different experience uh, between China and the West uh, formed their different visions on the aid and the business activities. Mm, it's interesting that you mentioned that China has experienced this only in the last four or five decades. And there's a striking passage in your book where you compare where China was in the 70s and 80s and your experience of growing up in Shanghai with the way a lot of African cities like Dar es Salaam or Nairobi or Lagos or whatever it is, what those cities are like now. And you say that even then, uh, you know, although China is now praised as having undergone this miraculous transformation, back then, uh, Chinese people were viewed as being lazy and recalcitrant to change. And those are the stereotypes that are peddled about Africa now. So I'm interested to hear, what do you think there seems to be, China seems to be driven also by uh, a deep, not necessarily sympathy, but I guess uh, a sense of, of being almost like a, an elder sibling and, and knowing that the younger sibling, uh, which is maybe uh, further behind in its development tra trajectory has to undergo the same experiences that it did. So when China assesses the state of, of development in, in Africa now, notwithstanding the fact that uh, political economic conditions are, are different for Africa now than they were for China in the 70s and 80s, what, what would its assessment of the continent be? Has, it, has, it, has the continent met its expectations of development has it fallen short of them, uh, and what does what would you say the Chinese outlook is for the future? Uh, 
I would say uh, so far, then the continent uh, hasn't uh, fully realized its potential yet. And uh, China uh, has a, a very high expectation for the continent because uh, uh, as uh, you said, uh, China itself was uh, uh, yeah, in the same situation or even worse situation than Nairobi or Lagos during the 1970s. Therefore, China knows that if uh, developing countries really uh, go on the right track, it uh, can, ex yeah, its uh, potential can be explosive. And uh, regarding this, I also want to say, uh, you can see this is also about uh, the yeah the so-called uh, the cultural stereotype, how it can be changed. So I argue this is only about the common uh, this uh, common goals. So because in China, in the nineteen seventies, just like in Africa, uh, even today, people are considered as lazy. But I observed that a lot of them they are diligent or hardworking in for their own. Uh, purposes like for religious purpose or for their own uh, communal traditions they would be very happy to contribute and work hard on that but uh, they only like uh, turn out to be so-called lazy uh, when maybe going to the factory because they are not used to the factory job or doing some this uh, uh, yeah, market related work, then they think, uh, yeah, maybe that doesn't, um, uh, is not so important for my life. Therefore, uh, they uh, seem to be lazy. But this is uh, this kind of laziness that's rather uh, because of uh, this, uh, uh, they do not have this goal of the capitalism. And that's uh, exactly about the transition. So I uh, more and more find out in China's uh, yeah, this transition, it's just about in the, uh, gradually, uh, all the whole country, they formed this uh, target on this uh, uh, pragmatism, namely as uh, taking the productivity growth and the sustainable productivity growth as the priority for the whole community, and everybody works towards it. And uh, this, uh, everybody works towards it. That's about the co-evolution. You have uh, all the people; they will try, they experiment, and then uh, move towards the same uh, target. And I believe that uh, in uh, Africa, then this trend, although it's slower, because in China, the, the history, actually, there was some historical incident to, uh, uh, to stimulate this consensus of the common goal, while in Africa, the system, the history doesn't have this kind of stimulation. But however, uh, the uh, increasing international cooperation with Africa and also a lot of these Chinese engagements and investments, business activities in Africa will uh, facilitate and accelerate this transformation. So in the long run, I would still say this uh, uh, 
yeah, potential for Africa to modernize and uh, to industrialize itself, it will be enormous. And uh, Chinese uh, are still largely confident about it. Although currently we, uh, the Chinese, uh, they are, uh, however, they keep their low key. So although they are confident about the long few, uh, long term future, they just uh, pay attention to the current this uh, the road ahead of them and doing it step by step. Mm, I think what you've just said now about the historical precedents that China had as being quite interesting because something else you talk about in your book is that in order to make such a deep transformation that requires the participation of every stakeholder in society. So the story of development is usually told as a miracle tale of a sudden reversal of a country's fortunes, usually at the hands of elite actors. But in your view, it is driven as much, if not more by the participation of ordinary people who themselves have to overcome their own skepticism, old habits and customs. And that process that you mentioned of of trial and error, of adaptation and, and improvisation is an important part of development. But as you've just said, the big difference seems to be that the historical precedents which create the conditions for such a process to thrive seem to be absent in, in Africa. So how would you then say one can reach that level of, of deep penetration into society when it comes to, to development in, initiatives? Yeah, indeed, I think uh, your understanding is very precise. And uh, this uh, view on the real like comprehensive transformation and especially uh, with also the historical um, yeah, heritage, I, it's not really my idea, but it's uh, actually taken from the uh, German philosopher Hegel. Uh, I adopt a lot of ideas from Hegel, but in, uh, to integrate it in the current China and uh, Africa's development story. And uh, uh, the society has always been changing. So the deep penetration, it's uh, only feels uh, difficult when you have uh, just one idea. But in fact, uh, I can see in, on the streets of African countries, uh, there have always uh, been new ideas and new changes. Uh, in even we say every day, yeah, these incremental changes. And uh, the main challenge for the development is just uh, how to. Uh, gather these uh, incremental efforts together towards the common goal. I think that's the most challenging one. And uh, for that, then the leader, is, because he is only a part of the society, so he cannot do all the things, right? And uh, then how to, uh, so that's why in China, uh, you have this uh, the system which helped the society to form consensus, but this system itself didn't guarantee the consensus because uh, also we see in a lot of this one party government, then they didn't uh, help the consensus formation, but rather caused a lot of uh, uh, yeah, uncover, uh, this uh, cover 
uh, dissatisfaction and the diverging opinions. But uh, uh, this actually depends. So it's not about uh, whether you have one party system, then you will have consensus. Uh, it's uh, more rather about uh, the history than uh yeah due to some of the historical incident we yeah we reached that stage and in africa then so far we hardly see anything uh, similar happening like in china but uh, we can see some trend like uh, every country also including the african union uh, people are talking about the pan-continental pan free trade zone people or in the yeah this uh nepal then people are uh, the leaders are discussing and interested in learning uh economic growth uh um, approaches from each other and also the african entrepreneurs uh, and the young people they are more and more aspiring for doing business and uh, also developing their economy and uh, yeah so and then plus uh, the chinese uh, indian and the european or american entrepreneurs uh, they also then uh, find uh, opportunities in african continent so I think uh, it will take a longer time since Africa is still currently politically relatively fragmented. But uh, uh, I also believe Africa has a lot of uh, uh, common identity and uh, the whole continent is uh, uh, yeah, sharing a lot of uh, common values and increasingly. And this will all promote uh, maybe the yeah, rapid development, uh, although not maybe not as rap rapid as China for the last decades, but uh, it uh, still will be a very uh, strong growth in this century, in the 21st century, I believe. Mm, mm. It's funny you mentioned Hegel. I'm a, I'm a budding Hegel scholar as well. And, you know, Hegel famously is the one that excluded Africa from uh, his assessment of civilizational models. So I guess the, the trend of dismissing Africa as this hopeless continent uh, begins with the person who is often most useful for thinking through uh, how global development happens. But um, coming back to to prospects for the continent, you know, I think one thing that does seem to be the trend as well is that the the kind of flexible, coordinated uh, approach to to involvement in in Africa that you that you describe as as unique to China seems to be something that that the West is, is increasingly adopting too. Um, and, and something that, for example, in, in Biden's proposed uh, Build Back Better World initiative is something that uh, he's emphasized and underscored. And, and I guess it's, it also has to do with the, the entanglements of, of global capitalism. So uh, you might, for example, on any given infrastructure project, whether it's financed by the West, where, whether it's financed by China, have an overlap of, of actors that are participating in it, maybe uh, the capitals raised by the West, but the contractors who are carrying out is, are, are Chinese. So in spite of the increasing rhetoric about uh, a new Cold War, 
Um, do you think that there are, are prospects for cooperation um, between uh, Western-led development in initiatives on the continent and Chinese-led development initiatives? Uh, at the very least, it seems that the, the preference from Africans themselves is to not have to choose. So, uh, you know, recent Afrobarometer surveys uh, report both uh, positive attitudes towards the West in terms of their involvement on the continent, as well as positive attitudes towards China in terms of their involvement towards the continent. So certainly it seems from the vantage point of, of Africans, there is no uh, real appetite to, to choose, but rather to, to, to embrace both, um, both the West and, and China as development partners. Um, but at least speaking from your assessment from, from China and in its interaction from the West, do you think that there are prospects for collaboration, especially when it comes to a lot of the grave threats that we face, such as climate change and public health crises uh, and so on. Yeah, uh, indeed, uh, I agree with your observation of uh, the, there are a lot of uh, common interest for cooperation. And uh, that uh, exactly rejects uh, that uh, perception of Cold War 2.0. Yeah, because in the Cold War, that's really about two camps, which uh, is a zero-sum game. But in the China and U.S., this uh, so-called great power competition, in fact, China, it's, grow, its own development is because China adopts this global capitalism and also respond to this global capitalism, but in their own manner. Right. So therefore, the, the basic uh, fundamental trend, it's in fact converging. China is uh, uh, getting a lot of uh, uh, yeah, this uh, experience uh, of doing business uh, and practice uh, from the Western capitalist uh, economies so that it, it was able to grow so fast during last decades. Uh, so yeah, in, so this uh, like uh, the uh, the competition between China and the U.S. therefore is of a totally different nature from the Cold War. Uh, China and the U.S. in spite of this trade war, China and the U.S. its trade is still one of the largest in the world, and their connections and their common interests are still a lot in, especially regarding this. Uh, business uh, and the bigger multinational companies. So, uh, and, and when it comes to the international development, these uh, common interests uh, are even more. So uh, I remember like five, six years ago when, the, uh, when China and the US was already, they had started this competition, but they signed the trilateral development agreement and to, uh, yeah, for East Timor and also for the African Union Center for Disease Control. And uh, because they uh, also understand that uh, in this uh, global capitalism, then a very important uh, uh, 
yeah, chance as well as uh, the challenge is uh, to promote the, all the developing uh, countries to modernize uh, and grow together. Otherwise, uh, then as I mentioned, uh, within a country, the inequality, they may cause uh, social and uh, political instability. The same is also for the international economic and uh, social in uh, inequality. If uh, you have uh, two uh, extremely poor regions, then the terrorism will threaten uh, maybe the uh, yeah, these uh, rich countries, but also for for emerging economies, then this uh, extremely poor regions, uh, then they means uh, also yeah, your products and also your uh, future development uh, chance. So China has has the same interest in developing the Africa and other underdeveloped regions. So that's uh, just uh, what I uh, also argued in the, my book on the uh, this uh, tr global trend so china and uh, although china used a different approach but that approach is not uh, to say a uh, totally different uh, or uh, or rejecting one of other approaches but it's uh, just a uh, uh, sees there's a trend and want to be more open for various approaches. And I think the only current the like hindrance for these countries to cooperate is the West, they didn't see it, they actually didn't open for the various approaches, while China actually is more open for the various approaches. And uh, but uh, as uh, you also see the Biden administration as well as uh, uh, yeah, other European countries, they also proposed their and uh, revised their approaches for the global development. So in in spite of the political rhetorics, I think the uh, this uh, visions on uh, development approaches will anyway be more open, and uh, yeah, people will uh, accept more alternatives when the new uh, emerging economies grow, and that will also be the trend for the coming uh, mm. decades. Mm. One place where the, the difference of approach does seem to be almost irreconcilable is in how the United States and China, or well, the West generally, uh, respond to, to when uh, political conflict erupts in a country. So China still maintains its policy of non-interference, whereas the, the United States is more likely to intervene either economically, politically, or militarily. And I'm curious as to whether or not you think the policy of non-interference is itself one adopted in the interest of pragmatism. Is it something that could perhaps be revised in extreme circumstances? So at the moment, for example, uh, China and Ethiopia still enjoy a very close relationship in spite of, of the civil war that's ongoing there. So at the point in which, for example, uh, political conflict threatens social stability, leads to disorder, and 
interferes with developmental goals, uh, might China perhaps reconsider, especially when we think of sustainable growth and sustainable development. Increasingly, it's, it encompasses uh, not only uh, economic growth, uh, but also uh, social cohesion, uh, respect for human rights, and so on. You see this non-interference policy, that's also a part of China's political subtext, because China, from its own experience, understands that any foreign external pressure, they just make things worse. In fact, the yeah during the for a developing country, there can be a lot of conflicts uh, and uh, uh, yeah, diverging opinions and just leave that uh, society to solve it, uh, to solve these problems themselves it will be better for any uh, yeah, interference and uh, also that's uh, another part of this interference story is this anti-colonialist history because uh, a lot of the western countries they just uh, used uh, this uh, uh, pretext uh, of uh, human rights, uh, of uh, democracy, but uh, tried to promote uh, their own agents. And uh, yeah, so uh, as a uh, suffering from a lot of from this uh, uh, interference itself, China suffered this uh, uh, kind of interference during the first part of 20th century. So China really then was uh, very uh, resistant to this kind of interference and uh, also realized the danger of them. And uh, but for China itself, this uh, uh, non-interference policy, it's not an ideology, but it exactly reflects the pragmatism. So you can see, in, find an interesting phenomenon. For China, no matter this country, it's uh, within the country, how it, uh, uh, how the civil conflict uh, or even civil wars uh, uh, yeah, took place. But in the end, China was able to work with either party. So a story is about Angola. In fact, China supported the Savimbi during the Civil War. But in the end, when Dos Santos then united, ended the Civil War, China was also very good to work with the former president Dos Santos. The same is also for, for Zambia, no matter for the previous parties and also to Michael Sata, to Longo, and not until now to HH, President HH. China can work with all different uh, kinds of uh, presidents as long as uh, they share this common vision of development. While the US or the West, they rather just choose one camp and uh, try to impose uh, their views and uh, their um, yeah, ideas through just one agent, and they refuse to work with the others. Uh, in fact, uh, as you mentioned, uh, uh, Ethiopia, the prime minister, current prime minister Abiy, when he came into power, he was a uh, 
quite uh, like a provost and was even awarded with Nobel Prize. But uh, then uh, later they had a political, yeah, different political ideas. Then it, the relationship with the war uh, West then worsened a lot. While China can keep a very pragmatic and a sustainable relationship with the previous government with uh, which was uh, mainly the yeah, dominated by the Tigrin officials. But uh, when now the uh, Prime Minister Abi, who is uh, from the Amhara region and the, yeah, also then with uh, more uh, other non-Tigrin officials, China was able to work them as well. So this, I think, uh, uh, the non-interference policy, that's uh, uh, yeah, on the one side, it's from this historical experience and uh, on the other hand, that's also uh, related uh, to China's uh, pragmatism. And uh, this uh, will continue uh, for the yeah, future. And uh, I think China is uh, quite uh, also yeah, appreciate, and also the African and other partner countries, they also appreciate China's attitude in general. Mm. And do you think that China expects equally from African countries that it should approach China with an attitude of, of non-interference? Or is it yes. more open-ended? Yeah. Mm. Okay. And then yes, I think yeah. yeah. And then maybe as a as a as a concluding question, Professor, because I'm I'm mindful of the time in Beijing and I've kept you for too long, but honestly, I could I could hear you talk about this all day because I think you've been mm -hmm. nothing but enlightening. We've, we've spoken about how China's long-term outlook for the continent is overwhelmingly an optimistic one, but I'm curious to hear whether or not China's outlook on itself might then also implicate its investment habits on the continent. So China's also facing a lot of pressures. Uh, there's big questions all the time about whether or not China will be able to sustain its current growth path. Uh, and there's also all the time transformations happening in China. And, and we've seen that kind of reflect its attitude towards investment elsewhere, increasingly becoming a little bit more cautious, a lot more risk averse. And something I'd mentioned er earlier, the pattern does seem to be that investment flows are directed less from the big investment banks and more through state-owned enterprises and private companies and the investment sums are also growing smaller and smaller. So do you think that reflects uh, not necessarily an insecurity on China's part about whether or not it's, it can sustain its investment on the continent, but perhaps uh, a desire to be uh, a lot more risk averse? Yeah, I think uh, first uh, then uh, using China's own experience, uh, I have witnessed the whole process of China's uh, past 40 years. And uh, there was uh, no real miracle. In fact, uh, there were a lot of uh, pitfalls. And uh, yeah, uh, 
China just uh, so when you pick any moment uh, out of these forty years, China always experienced uh, uh, numerous challenges, and uh, people were always uh, quite uh, uh, doubtful about uh, China's next step and saying China may be uh, going to collapse soon. <laughs> and uh, in fact, they were also up and down, and uh, that's uh, just a uh, very common for. The capitalist for market economy, and uh, especially for this emerging market economy, this fluctuation and uh, the up and down will be even larger. Yeah, the volatility is of course larger, and uh, but uh, so yeah, uh, when it comes to the uh, engagements with Africa to reduce uh, some uh, loans, uh, especially because of COVID, but also. Also, out of concern of uh, some uh, yeah, non-functioning loans, like some uh, infrastructure projects, we still need to wait uh, to see how they become uh, effective, become productive. We may need uh, a little bit more time and uh, find uh, some uh, more effective approaches. But in the long run, I still say this is just a part of uh, the uh, capitalism and. Uh, this market economy and industrialization uh, going further like uh, influencing China and African countries. Because uh, for China and Africa, the way for their future is certainly the industrialization and this market economy. And uh, to, uh, they have no other choice in face of this global, uh, global trend. And uh, to do that, uh, then they, are, uh, they really have uh, the complementary need. So not only for China itself to continue its uh, growth, they need a space and uh, a more uh, potential from uh, uh, partners like Africa. But Africa, they also will require investment uh, and uh, this uh, industrial um, yeah, uh, capacity from uh, China. So it's just uh, their structural complementarity lays uh, the uh, foundation for their cooperation for it can be uh, at least a decades long cooperation, if not century long. And uh, uh, also then, yeah, I uh, you you mentioned uh, this uh, banks uh, they may give uh, less loans, but when we uh, change to investment and uh, to maybe even private uh, uh, companies in manufacturing or in digital economy, that's in fact even rather an encouraging phenomenon, because uh, we are moving towards this just uh, uh, the one sector of this infrastructure instruction to even more and uh, also deeper cooperation with the African economy. So uh, the co-evolutionary pragmatism, I'm uh, convinced it still will be the main spirit between the two parties because the pragmatism, namely this target, it doesn't change. It's a must in this global trend. And the co-evolution, uh, yeah, first it allows up and down, right? The evolution then it doesn't mean the linear progress, mm -hmm. but can 
be uh, up, can be also be down. And uh, meanwhile, it also means the expanding uh, involvement. If we have uh, more uh, stakeholders and uh, more aspects involved in this uh, uh, co-evolutionary process, namely the digital economy, manufacturing, also some of this uh, social and uh, yeah, cultural aspect uh, all together. This will make this uh, transformation uh, more comprehensive and uh, yeah, to more fundamental. So I think the basic elements and uh, dynamism hasn't been changed. And uh, I'm still yeah, quite confident. Mm. Professor Tang, thank you so much for, for coming onto the program. I think you've been really, really insightful and we appreciate you taking the time. And a reminder to everyone that I've been dis discussing Professor Tang's latest book called Co-Evolutionary Pragmatism, Approaches and Impacts of China-Africa Economic Cooperation, which was published last year with Cambridge University Press. I think the easiest place to obtain a copy of the book is via Amazon. And I think it's, it's, it's quite, a, quite a necessary read, I think, for anyone interested in, in Africa's developmental future. Professor Tang is Associate Professor in the Department of International Relations at Tsinghua University, as well as Deputy Director at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center for Global Policy. Professor Tang, thank you so much.